Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. We're in uh, the middle of a series called Stride. Uh, what we're doing is we're taking a look at the book of Luke uh, as we lead up to the events that uh, we're going to celebrate at Good Friday and Easter. Uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, we're trying to build the story up to that point so that we understand uh, what is happening, so that we understand the magnitude of what Jesus did for us, and we understand uh, the magnitude of his whole uh, life and what it means. Uh, in the beginning of the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 4, uh, he's writing to Theophilus, his sponsor, uh, and he's saying, hey, um, listen, uh, I'm going to write this orderly account of everything that Jesus did for you uh, with the idea that you would be certain in the things that you've been taught. And that word certain means to, to kind of not wobble, to not totter. So Luke is wanting um, uh, Theophilus, he's wanting us, to walk confidently as Jesus' disciples, uh, following him, not stumbling, not tottering, not uh, being distracted, and not missing everything that he has for us. And so we're just going to continue in that journey today. Uh, just to remind us, we started out, and I think you're going to see begin to see a progression here in the story. Uh, the first week of the series, we looked at Jesus' credentials. So kind of the things we would look at sort of rationally to say, yeah, this Jesus, uh, he's the son of God. All these things line up. His genealogy lines up. He had this miraculous birth. He was baptized. Uh, he has the credentials of an educator. He's a rabbi. We can trust all of that. We can trust his credentials. And then in the second week, we sort of looked at his mission and the people he was reaching out to, and we basically said, whoa, he is really good. Like, his message is really good, and it's for me, and he's an amazing teacher. He's saying things like, blessed are the poor, and, and I'm the poor, so this message is for me. I'm poor in spirit. I'm weak in spirit. Uh, I'm a person who needs healing. I'm a person who needs salvation from my sins. So yeah, this person who has these credentials, he's actually, he's good for me as well. And then last week, we took another step in the story of following Jesus and followed the story of uh, a first century prostitute who came to the realization that, yep, Jesus had the credentials, yep, he was good, and yep, he is her king. And she had this incredibly intimate encounter with him where she pushed past all of her barriers, all of her shame, all of her fear, and found herself in the middle of a crowd of Pharisees uh, weeping at Jesus' feet. Uh, pouring her heart out for him with this incredibly intimate worship experience. And today we're going to take another step from that place. Uh, we're going to see what it means to follow him because it's actually a very different thing to uh, follow someone and to be committed to them uh, than it is to, to just have a, a loving, heartfelt worship thing. That loving, heartfelt worship thing is so important. That recognition of who he is as king is amazing. It's, it's so powerful to have that kind of loving encounter with God. But then following him on that journey is a different story. Uh, just to give you an example, when I went away to uh, school, I went to a school called the Elon Bible Institute. I was in high school, um, and uh, I, I, was, I, I was wondering where to go, where to study. I had uh, acceptances in a number of different places, but I heard this missionary come and teach about Elam, uh, teach about his adventures in China and New Zealand, Australia, and I was like, whoa, this fits. This is a great place, and all of a sudden, everything was about Elam. I was so excited about it. I, was, I wasn't looking on the internet because there was no internet, just to give you an idea of the 
time frame. Uh, but uh, I was getting brochures and talking to people. I was so excited about Elam and I was ready to go. I was, I was, I was pumped. And then I read the brochures and I started to think, hmm, tuition in the U.S. is pretty high. And this dress code thing where I'm going to have to wear a suit and tie to class every day for Bible school, this is harsh. And I'm going to have to leave Anna. I'm engaged to this beautiful woman. I'm going to have to leave her for the first year of school and go live down in the States. Uh, we had like uh, phone cards then. We didn't have cell phones, right? So we had to dial in like 100 numbers to call one another. And we could only afford to do that once a week. So I had to basically leave my wife and to, you know, be pretty disconnected from her. We wrote letters on paper and put them in the mail uh, while I was gone, right? So it was a very different thing going to Elam than it was being excited about Elam. Um, and that's sort of what's happening in this story with Jesus. Uh, he has the crowds gathered. They've seen who he is. They've seen that he's good. They've seen uh, the miracles. They've heard the teaching. Some of them have had forgiveness pronounced over them. Like they are in love. Like this guy is amazing. And everywhere he's going, people are getting healed and crowds are gathering. And it's fantastic. It's, uh, it's fabulous. But he knows at this point that he's going to the cross. And he knows at this point that the love that he was going to express to them and the reason they loved him was ultimately going to lead to pain. It was ultimately going to lead to conflict with the religious authorities of his day. It was ultimately going to be, lead to uh, a huge, huge conflict. Just as, the, as much as they loved him, the other leaders would feel threatened by him. And ultimately they were going to kill him. And so while they're excited, he knows that following him is going to be a difficult journey. Let me just tell you a little story uh, that we can sort of use as maybe a bit of a metaphor, as a bit of a, um, an illustration uh, to go on with that. So uh, the image you're seeing on the screen is just a picture from Google Maps of the apartment that Anna and I lived in in the early part of our marriage uh, in Toronto, like right beside the 401, like traffic bombing by all the time. And incidentally, right at the end of the airport with planes like flying over, like it was not a nice place, right? It was a crazy place, but imagine that we'd stayed there for a long time in our, in our lives and we'd raised our kids there. Um, so imagine that you and your brother, they're yeah, in school. Uh, you're about to, maybe your older brother's about to graduate high school. You've grown up in this small rental apartment. Uh, it's home, it's relatively comfortable, uh, but it's, it's not great. You have kind of good friends in the neighborhood. Uh, you play in soccer outside. Uh, life is okay. It's everything you've ever known, but it's just not the greatest place in the world. Um, all of a sudden your dad comes home one day and he says to you, listen, uh, I've reconciled something with my father and he has invited us to go to Italy and live with him in this amazing chateau he has. And it's a fantastic place. Uh, we're not going to have to work so much, your mom and I. Uh, we'll have to work on the vineyards, but, but it's going to be okay. We're going to be working with grandfather, and you guys can be part of it. We're going to get so much time together. Uh, well, there's a vacation property on the coast. Uh, there's going to be ski dues and the whole deal. Uh, there's an amazing private school in the village. Uh, you're going to get to see grandpa all the time. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic journey. Here, here's some pictures that grandpa sent of the place. Um, this is what it's going to be like. Here's what your bedrooms are going to be like. Again, there's a swimming pool. There's a water slide. It's amazing. 
Uh, new house, new clothes, new life. It's wonderful. And as kids, you're hearing your dad say this, and you are so excited about the journey. It's amazing. And you're, you, just, you just went right out to the store. You went and you got yourself a, a cup for your dad. It says, Dad, you the best. You're the best. You're the best dad ever. You're amazing. We love you so much. You are the bomb. As a parent, you'd be completely thrilled, right? You'd be loving the attention. You'd be loving the affection uh, uh, that your kids are giving you. You'd be really thrilled. But there would be some concern quietly rising in your heart as well. You'd be thrilled with this reaction. But you know what it takes to make that move. You know your kids are going to have to be in the apartment for a while, uh, while you kind of work a little bit, six months maybe, to save money for the plane tickets, uh, the moving costs, some of the stuff that you love and that you've had in your home for your whole life, your furniture, it's going to get sold on Kijiji. Uh, these, these plane tickets and moving stuff is, is expensive. And not only that, you're going to have to say goodbye to your friends. Uh, you're going to have to say goodbye to the kids that you've grown up with in the building that you've known. Uh, you'll be glad to be not walking down the hall that smells like fish all the time, but you kind of like that lady who makes the fish all the time. Like they're people that you love, people that you care about. It's, it's the only world you've ever known. You're actually pretty attached to it. Maybe your older brother has a, a, you know, a scholarship to U of T and he's like, I don't think I'm going to make the trek to Italy. I know you're excited about that trip, but I'm, I'm not going with you. So you're going to have that loss as well. Um, and you're going to have to learn a new language. You're going to have to learn a new culture. There's going to be new foods, new experiences. It's not going to be as rosy as the idea was when your father first introduced you to it. So as a dad and mom, you know that selling your kids on this new home, that's the easy part. Uh, helping them let go of the old home, that's the hard part. Uh, and all of a sudden your world's greatest dad mug says at the bottom semi-finalist, right? Like you are not the world's greatest dad anymore. In fact, as a father and as a loving father, you're going to have to say some hard things and ask your children to make some hard decisions in order to make that journey of following you, even though it's to a much, much better place. Letting go of the old place is really hard. And discipleship is that. That's a huge part of what discipleship is for us. Discipleship is the practical journey from the kingdom of yourself to the kingdom of God. It's the practical transition, the hard decisions of making a journey from the kingdom of yourself to the kingdom of your God. Because in the end, you just can't live in both kingdoms at once. In the end, you have to leave one and move to the other. And so what we're going to see in this section uh, of the story, uh, the disciples, everybody's fallen in love with Jesus, but now we're starting to trek towards Jerusalem. Now we're starting to, re to trek towards difficult times. And Jesus is going to have to say some hard things to help us decouple uh, from the kingdom of self, from the kingdom of this world, to enter into his kingdom. So uh, when we look at this next section, uh, we're looking again from roughly from the end of chapter 9 through to the end of chapter 14. 
Jesus is actually going to be quite brutal about this. He's going to say some things that are going to shock us, and he's going to say some things that are going to shake us. And actually, this is the point in the sermon that it actually could get really depressing. Like those cost of discipleship sermons, like they're not fun sermons. Like nobody likes them. It's a super depressing sermon, right? But bef so before we get into the hard things that, that Jesus said, first I want to remind us of that of that future, and I want to just lay down a principle for us that we can so we can really understand what's happening here. We don't want to get caught up in the cost without thinking of the value. And that's just the main idea there is that cost, the cost of discipleship implies value. The cost of laying down things in our lives implies that there's something that we're laying them down for, that there's something that's uh, awesome for us, even though it's really hard for us to see that, even though it's really hard for us to decouple from our habits and our comforts and our toys and our homes and our wealth and all of these sorts of things to follow Jesus. Um, in the end, what we're going to find out is that it's absolutely worth it. Uh, if we look at how we live our lives right now, uh, if we live our lives before even thinking about Jesus, I, I've I tried to represent this on a simple chart just so that we can, we can really see the difference. Like this is life apart from Jesus, life apart from following him. And generally you live a life and we're taught to live a way uh, because of the way our culture is, uh, that, that we're the greatest good. Like, you are the greatest good. The very best thing that you can do is spare no expense, loving yourself, pampering yourself, worshiping yourself, taking care of yourself, setting yourself up for uh, a perfect and pain-free life. I'm, I'm spouting some Mark Clark thinking here, but this is just the gospel. Um, if, if the natural atheistic kind of story is true, and there is no next life, the logical thing for you to do is to just compile as much wealth and comfort as possible. Right? And so that's why we're kind of attached to this old world, because that's what we see uh, in our, with our natural eyes. That's what we see as value. But when we look beyond life uh, to what happens after death, it looks kind of like that. All that stuff that you've accumulated, you know, it's an old saying, you can't take it with you. Uh, when you get beyond death, none of that stuff that you accumulated is, is going to have any value to you. It's not going to be any good. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus is going to say. But I want you to catch the value side. Uh, the way we live as Christians, or we're intended to live, is this. Before we know Jesus, before we give our hearts to him, uh, the, the, we're, we're accumulating the stuff of life. But when we convert and we become his disciples, we are asked to begin to give away those things that we've accumulated. Uh, we're asked to spend them on others, to spend them on the kingdom, to spend them on the life of the church, to spend them uh, not on ourselves, but on other human beings. And if we look at that trajectory in that way, that just looks depressing. It looks expensive. It looks like pain. And it is. It actually is painful for us to live this way. We have to actually go through griefs in order to do it. But when you look beyond the veil of death, and when you look to the kingdom, and there is also kingdom value in this place as well, the chart looks like this. Everything that you've given up, You've given up for something that is more, for something that is better, for something that is eternal, for something that is ultimate. So as we listen to these hard sayings of Jesus about decoupling uh, from the things that we love in order to embrace his kingdom, I want to make sure that we have in mind the value. I want to make sure we have in mind 
uh, what we're in it for. And this is exactly why Jesus endured what he endured. When we look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, says, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, uh, scorning or despising its shame. So he uh, despised the shame of the cross. He was like, I don't, I don't care if there's shame in this. It's not, the shame doesn't mean anything to me. I'm, I'm here for the joy. The shame is worthless compared to the joy. And so for the joy set before us, Jesus says hard things to us to help us detach from the kingdom of self. And this is brutal. Like in just four chapters, he says a lot of hard things. This is absolutely uh, the theme of these verses as he turns his face towards Jerusalem. And let me just read them. I just went back a little bit in nine. Take up your cross and follow me. Now for us, the image of a cross is something on a church wall or something hanging in a chain around your neck. But anybody in the first century who he heard Jesus say that knew that somebody walking down the street carrying a cross was going to die and going to die a horrible and torturous death. But if you want to follow me, you take up your cross in comfortable, uncomfortable teaching of Jesus. And we're just going to let him hit us with these uh, for a little while. But remember all the while that we're looking towards the value that these things imply. Whoever, sorry, whoever is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him harsh, sweet, gentle Jesus. Foxes have holes, uh, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's what Jesus answered when a disciple uh, sort of said, hey, I, I got to take care of my stuff before I can follow you. And Jesus said, hey, I'm not taking care of my stuff. I'm just going. You want to come with me? Leave the stuff. Uh, let the dead bury their own dead. Somebody else in the same sort of parable is saying, hey, Jesus, I really want to follow you, but I have to go back. My, my dad has just died. Uh, I want to take care of my dad and, and do the funeral and do the whole deal. And sweet, gentle Jesus says, well, let the dead bury their own dead. Again, I'm just going to let those harsh things sit with us, and then we'll sort of explain them in a moment. But just what Jesus is doing here by this talking about these uh, Items of great cost is he's going to imply great value. Um, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit. Right? So in the previous one, it's like, so our griefs don't even necessarily trump the kingdom of God all the time. Sometimes we have to step forward and do the things we're called to, uh, even though we're grieving things that we've lost. No one who puts their hand to the plow looks back. So my regret isn't something that's supposed to hold me back. Uh, what I've lost, I'm not supposed to focus on it. I'm supposed to look forward. Uh, whoever denies me, I will deny. So let's talk about our status. We, we, often, we deny Jesus to maintain our status, right? To maintain our relationships with people that don't understand him, don't know him. So we pretend we don't know him. And he says, if, if you deny me, I'll deny you. So if you want to follow me, you have to uh, proclaim me. A hard thing said, sweet, gentle Jesus. Uh, talking with a rich young man, talking about the things that he's accumulated, uh, Jesus says, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. 
Like, I don't know whether he's prophesying this guy's death. Like, we don't know what it's like in this story. But tonight, this your soul may be required of you. Your possessions, whose will they be? Who's going to get all your stuff? Because you're not taking it with you. Sweet, gentle Jesus. And remember, as we're saying each of these things, again, he's talking about a value that he's placing on something that's above these things. Another way to look at these hard sayings, and we're going to keep going with a few more of them, is say, uh, imagine Jesus saying, because I love you, I want you to understand. Because I love you, don't seek. Sorry. Do not seek what you were to eat. Seek the kingdom. Because I love you, don't worry about your food and provision. Don't control that. Trust me for it. Uh, choose the kingdom above that. Because I love you, uh, to whom much is entrusted, much will be required. He's talking about obedience and effort required to follow him. If you're going to be entrusted with leadership with Jesus, you're going to be required to be obedient. Uh, do not think that I have come to bring, bring peace. In one house there will be five divided, two against three. You're going to be called to follow Jesus in ways that some people in your family won't understand. Maybe you and your brother will decide to follow Jesus, but maybe your parents will judge you. Maybe they won't be interested in following, but you're still going to have to follow. So following Jesus trumps relationships. Um, unless you repent, you will perish. You don't get to keep your sin. Uh, part of the journey of discipleship is decoupling from our sinful habits and from our uh, addictions. Again, it's that process. Disciple is that process of letting go of the old world for the new. And then in verse 13, 24, strive to enter the narrow door. He's just saying basically here it's all hard. Like it's not, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not like a big wide door. Like you got to squeeze through. This is not an easy thing for you. Right. So offering all of these things up, um, these are the costs of discipleship. But if cost implies value, then the bent and selfish things we give up here will later be reflected as God-centered holy things in the future. Now, the book of Matthew is much better at that. Like Luke just bludgeons us with the hard things and doesn't give us the easy ones. If you want some encouraging upside, you're going to go to Luke, where he's going to talk about storing up treasure in heaven and all kinds of good things like that. Luke just leaves us hanging for the most part. But I want us to see what the good things implied in the sacrifices are, just so that we can sort of celebrate the benefits. Again, this is just the same list, but let's just look at what's on the other side. Take up your cross and follow me. Well, on the other side of death is eternal life. On the other side of following him in his death is being raised to new life. That's what we symbolize in baptism. On the other side of the loss of your reputation uh, is his glory. On the other side of homelessness, foxes have holes, uh, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no weight place to lay his heads. Well, on the opposite of homelessness is eternal home in his new creation. On the other side of laying down your griefs is true community, eternal. On the other side of regret is celebration, and, and I should say community within the kingdom of God as well, uh, in, in our lives, that all of these benefits, we begin to walk in the spiritual and ultimate ways uh, of them as we go into life. 
Uh, the other side of regret is celebration. The other side of being, uh, of denying is uh, the belonging and welcome. The other side of generosity is reward. Uh, the other side of uh, hunger is satisfaction. And that's why we have images of banquet uh, table that Jesus is preparing for us. On the other side of our obedience is walking in true authority, uh, reigning with him in his kingdom. On the other side of division is peace and community, uh, ultimately uh, community with him. And on the other side of repentance is holiness and freedom. So all of these things that are costly uh, have things uh, in our future uh, that are uh, by far much more valuable. And then just just to look at this last one, Luke hits us with the hardest one of all, and the hardest one to unpack, and the hardest one to understand. Uh, Luke 14, 25 to 33 reads like this. And remember, don't get depressed, because there's value. These are hard sayings, but listen, it's worth it. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me, remember the great crowds are gathering, they're excited to be there, they're excited to see him, so he's going to say some depressing things to calm them down and help them realize what they're in for. Uh, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be his disciple. So first... Jesus is using a really interesting literary device here, something that we see uh, often in the Hebrew. You think of uh, Old Testament, um, you see uh, Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated, right? Um, we know that God doesn't hate Esau. We know that God doesn't uh, despise Esau. We know that God loves him. We know that God grieved the loss of Esau. Uh, we know that Jesus loves people. We know that Jesus doesn't want us to hate our parents. In fact, that one of the very last things that Jesus said on the cross uh, in uh, John 19, 26, uh, he saw the disciple whom he loved standing beside his mother and said, Dear woman, here is your son. He's saying to, uh, to John, Hey, can you take care of my mom for me, please? Like one of his last thoughts was to ask one of his disciples to take care of his mom. So that we, we know that Jesus is not saying, you know, you have to hate your parents. What he's doing in terms of that literary devices, he's saying that there is a relative value between two things. That one thing may have value, uh, but the other thing, the thing that is not hated, has greater value. So when we look at it and we look at that, we think, okay, so we need to love Jesus, hold him here, love him. And then we need to hate our parents, shove them way down to the bottom. And that's not what that literary device is meant to do. What that literary device is meant to do is say, these two things that are roughly similar, um, you're not to push that one that you hate down. What you're doing is elevating and lifting up the one that has great value. And so Jesus is saying about your parents, about your family, about your relationships, uh, you're, you're supposed to love them. But honestly, you need to know that there will be times when you're going to have to recognize that following me is even more beautiful and is even better and is actually even more important. Now, these are radical things for Jesus to say. Uh, the only kind of person who could say something like this is somebody who thinks they're God. <laughs> and Jesus did think he was God. He was God. He was the creator of the universe. And so when we see 
him and who he is, creator of the universe, the one who spoke it all into existence with a word, the one who created me, the one who created your mom, your brothers, your sisters, your father, your husband, your wife, the one who created all of them. Of course, you place the value on him high above all else. So because he loves you, he wants you to know that following him, while it's costly, is ultimately worth it. He doesn't want us to live cheap lives and miss his glory. And so that's going to mean uh, all kinds of different things for different ones of us. Uh, it's going to mean, um, you know, if you really want to learn and follow and grow and become uh, deeper in your relationship with him, you, you just can't hold on to your old life of watching hours and hours of Netflix and playing hours and hours of games. You just can't do both. You can't have one and at the same time have the other. You just can't. Uh, you can't, if you want to serve the church uh, and, and give your life to ministry to a certain degree, you're going to have to sacrifice a certain uh, bit of the productivity that you might otherwise have invested in your career. Right? You might not be able to take your business as far as you want it to go. You might not be able to take your career as far as you want it to go because you're going to take some of your life's energy and efforts, however much Jesus calls you, and you're going to invest it in the kingdom of God because you're one person. As my wife always says, you can't ride two horses with one ass. <laughs> you can't. You can't do both. You can't be in two places at once. You can't do the two things. If we want to have a building as a church, uh, some of us will have to sell our properties, maybe. Some of us will have to downsize. Uh, we might have to sell off some vehicles. We might have to give up some, things, some toys that we love so that we have money to build a ministry center of whatever, or, or fund a ministry center, or rent a ministry center, or fund whatever ministry we're called to do together, as God speaks clearly to us about that. We might not be able to have all the things. We just might not. If you want to get clean and free of drugs, or whatever it is, well, maybe you can't be as invested in your old friends and go to the same parties you used to go to. You just can't do both. You have to leave one kingdom behind to get to the other kingdom. And what Jesus is saying through all of this is that it's worth it. It's just worth it. It's worth it for the eternal value. And it's worth it even for the value in the here and now, uh, the transformation that happens in the world around us. But we can't accept cheap faith. We can't accept a cheap Christian life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, is the person who says this more clearly than anybody else. Uh, he said this, he said, Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross grace without Jesus. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story is, is amazing. At age 14, he announced to his parents, this is a, a man, young man who grew up in Germany, is an important theologian. Uh, we'll see by the end of his story, ultimately he uh, died in, uh, in, a, in a concentration camp uh, in Germany just a month before uh, the war ended. At the age of 14, he announced to his parents, who were aristocrats essentially in German culture, that he intended to become a pastor. And he said that knowing that he was choosing something costly. He knew his parents uh, wouldn't support him. He pastored his first church in Spain, and uh, under, I think, the power of the Holy Spirit, by all things described in terms of reading his biography, called that church to repentance and renewal, uh, kind of a dead and a quiet church, and, and, and caused a lot of change in that church in, in his early ministry, knowing that the authorities wouldn't really be excited about that. He helped organize the Confessing Church in Germany, helped write the Barman Declaration in 1934, essentially denouncing uh, the doctrine of the Nazi party that was kind of co-opting church theology to say uh, that some of the horrible things that they were invested in were things that uh, God was invested in. And they wrote a declaration saying, no, it's not true. Uh, God will not be co-opted by the government. Um, he was banned from teaching. He knew that would be costly. So continued an underground seminary called uh, Finkenwald. He knew that would be costly. He signed up as a spy so that he would be free uh, with the government thinking that he was there to spy in the places he was speaking in America and Britain and bring back reports uh, to Germany about what was going on there. He used that time and energy and the freedom to travel uh, to free Jewish people and help them get papers and help them get across the border. He knew that would be costly. Uh, he was invited to stay on one of those trips in America. And in the end, he said, I can't, I must go and I must serve and I must suffer uh, with my family, with my community in Germany. He knew that would be costly, but he followed Jesus. In 1943, his resistance efforts were discovered and he was taken to Tegel Prison. Uh, and so while he was in prison, he still was a pastor there. And the guards beat him and his food was cut back. But he followed Jesus, knowing it was costly. He was transferred to the concentration camp uh, Buchenwald and he pastored in the concentration camp. And ultimately, he was transferred to an extermination camp. And that's where he gave his life. A decade later, a camp doctor uh, who witnessed his death just a month before the war uh, described it like this. I'm just going to read to you what the doctor uh, wrote. He said this, The prisoners, including Dietrich, were taken from their cells. And the verdicts of court-martial were read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer. Before taking off his prison guard and stripping naked, he knelt on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed. So devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer 
and simply climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in just a few seconds. And in the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. What did Bonhoeffer know that we don't? <laughs> what did Bonhoeffer know that the doctor didn't know? Through all his life, through all his sacrifice, through all his putting himself in danger, uh, through all his constant preaching of the gospel and becoming a disciple himself and uh, investigations in theology and helping the Jews and pastoring in the prison camps, what did he know that we don't. He knew it was worth it. He knew it was worth it. And so for us, we have to know it's worth it. I don't know what God's calling you to give up. I don't know what you have to leave behind to follow Jesus. I don't know what the cost is for you to be everything he's calling you to be in the kingdom. But I promise you, I promise you, whatever he calls you to live, leave behind, will be reflected in an ultimate way, in a holy way, in a God-centered way, and in a beautiful way as the kingdom advances and in the life to come. I promise you, and I'm hearing this promise for myself with the things I have to wrestle with, it's worth it. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.